Thanks, Radhika. So this is my last one for a little while. Just a reminder, I'm going on sabbatical, not you. So uh, the, one of the best ways that you can actually support a pastor when they take their sabbatical besides praying for them is by coming to church. Because it is stressful when you go on sabbatical and like 30% of the church doesn't show up and you realize that the church is unhealthy and all that kind of stuff. So please come to church while I'm not here. And um, that'd be great. Be a great help to me. Um, so we're talking about th- this, this concept of that by understanding how God wants us to feel and then learning how to be better at feeling in accord with the gospel and the truth, we will actually, over the long run, feel better. And that that is the way um, spiritual discipleship is meant to form us emotionally so that we can both enjoy our lives and feel accurately and rightly. Does that make sense? And so we've gone through feeling out of control, feeling forgotten, feeling, or feeling afraid, feeling weary, feeling embattled, all these kinds of things. And feeling forgotten this week is kind of the— it's a good culminator because it actually is a feeling that tends to attend on the other ones. If you feel really weary, you can very easily also feel forgotten. If you're feeling really afraid, you often feel afraid because you feel like God isn't there, isn't with you in it, and you feel forgotten. If you feel out of control, you often feel— generally speaking, divinely speaking, feeling forgotten by God often attends on all these other emotional hardships. Does that make sense? And Although we don't often want to talk about this very much, the, the sense of feeling forgotten, especially forgotten by God, is a common, private, and often kind of feeling. It's common to all people. It's private in that you can't really—nobody else can really feel exactly how you feel about it. Though they often do, it's very hard to, to really share it. And it's, it's often like there's—any time your life isn't going the way you want it to, that, that feeling— often leaps to this idea, well, where is God and why is it like this and how come? Wait, am I being forgotten? And th- th- those two don't actually go together other than in our, like, our instincts and our intu- intuitions. Does that make sense? And so wh- what it can feel like is sort of like a car that gets parked in a junkyard. You just kind of get—you feel parked. You feel like you're just there. Other people are going to, like, strip parts off of you for whatever they think is good for them until you get overtaken by rust and weeds. And if you, if you go through the Bible, there's, there's tons of examples of people who, if you look at their life, you can see how they probably felt, right? There are all kinds of dynamics by which that happens, whether it's David feeling surrounded and attacked, and so he might feel forgotten, whether it's somebody like Jeremiah when things have gone terribly wrong in the kingdom, and they, there's been this huge calamity feeling like they're forgotten, whether it's somebody like Moses who is like, out in the desert, he was 80 years old. He felt like he's retired. Whatever was going to happen has passed him by. Yeah, that's when God calls him. Well, there's somebody like Timothy who is biracial, who, though he belongs to two groups, he kind of feels like he doesn't belong to either until God comes along through Paul and says, actually, you're the perfect person to bring two peoples together. Abigail is a good example of this. She was a woman who had a terrible husband. His name meant foolishness, Nabal. And whenever he'd be, act, do something, like when, so, so he just decided it'd be great to offend the most powerful warlord in the entire region, who at this point was David, who would be later King David. And David's like, I'm going to kill this guy. And, and Abigail's response when she hears that this is happening, she goes, man, that guy's just always living up to his name. <laughs> and then she intervenes and like sorts it all out so nobody gets killed. And David's like, you kept me from sinning, and then Nabal dies of a heart attack the next week. It's a fun passage. But like you can, but there are some people who feel like because of, because of like who they're married to or because of this kind of baggage, right? There's other folks like in the, in the Bible, there's, um, 
this category of people called eunuchs who had had their genitals removed so that they could be a certain kind of slave with certain tasks. And there's a lot of people who, who feel like they, because that person's like twice out, right? They're out as a slave, but then they're out again as a eunuch. And um, there's a lot of people, for whatever reason, they just feel like they can't live up to whatever other people feel like is normal. And so they just can't do it, right? Whether it's some kind of internal orientation or whether it's just like you, your life was so crazy growing up that you can't put on normal for more than about a couple hours a day. And just because of that reality of your experience, you just can't, you just can't seem to get within the stream of normal going somewhere, right? And there's tons of these examples. One of the examples that David gives about how it feels, so it could feel like this. The example that David gives is kind of like there are these enemies that are kind of closing in around him. And he, he's talking like he's, he's at the tent of God, he's at God's temple, and he is seeking God. And meanwhile, while he's in the middle of the city, there are, these, there are these enemies that are kind of encroaching, kind of like a bird in a cage, and there's just like cats crawling all over it, right? That kind of experience, like you're in the middle of it, and you don't really know where God is in all of this, is a very common thing. Um, sometimes we refer to it as feeling forgotten. Sometimes um, in the Bible, it's the metaphor that's often used is being in the wilderness. It's not something you hear in church as much anymore because we've tried to get away from basically our whole heritage of language so that people who don't go to church feel good about it. Um, but people used to talk about this a lot, being personally being in the wilderness. Um, this, so this last week I had um, my uh, evaluation from the elder board, and one of the questions they asked me in the evaluation was, so Nick, uh, like, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, you're about to take your sabbatical. How bad do you feel like you need it? Like, how tired, burnout out are you? And I was like, you know, actually, other than like the first two months when I first got here, I'm actually like in the best place I've been personally in seven years. And the same thing's true with the staff. Like, I actually don't need to rest. There's a ton of stuff I want to go investigate and figure out and see what God wants to do with me for the next decade. So it's a perfect time for sabbatical, but not because I'm dying. And they were like, well, that's good. That was not true last September at all. We spent a little bit of extra money for our staff retreat. We went for three days to um, Green Lake, and we did a, what you do on staff retreats on a church. You, we prayed, we worshiped, we planned, we strategized, we talked about the next year, we did all this stuff. And in terms of work, it was going kind of well. But by the end of the second night, like, it was really clear that there were monkeys in the room. Like, that it was, like, there was, it didn't feel sweet. It didn't feel like our hearts were coming together. We really knew what was going on. And so um, after this kind of, like, discussion time, it kind of came out. There were, like, something like 10 staff members who were, like, 26 or younger, and a bunch of them said, I just don't even know why I'm here. I don't know why I'm on the staff. I don't know what I bring to the table. I don't know why you hired me, right? Which you don't want to hear that from staff people, right? And part of it was because Mike had been here, I think almost a year by that point, but Lloyd and Mike and I were, were not in sync. And so all these staff were kind of getting a little bit of different feel from each one of us. And then on top of that, you know, Lloyd and Vince expressed, you know, they're like, we've, it feels like we've been auditioning since we got here. Right, because Vince came as a pastoral fellow, and then he was an interim worship person, and then he was an interim children's person before we brought him on full time. And so he felt he'd been auditioning for a year and a half, and so had Mike, and that's not a great place to be emotionally. And so we, we all came out, and it was like, oh, that is not where you want your staff to be as a leader. And then the next morning, it got worse. 
So we all went to lunch together. It was like the last thing we were going to do before we went home. And we're just about to go. We're waiting for the dining hall basically to open. We're playing, playing cards and joking around and whatever. And, but we were having a couple serious conversations. And a couple things came up. And, and Mike was like, okay, wait, I'm hearing the same thing. So we talked for a second. So we brought everybody together and said, hey, we feel like some similar things are going on in people's hearts that we didn't share last night. And it probably needs to come out. So if you're comfortable, would you share, right? So we're, we're sitting here in this public, like, lobby— and people start sharing these, and, and they were almost all dreams. People have been having these basically ministry-related, possibly demonic nightmares. <laughs> okay, so like, I mean, like, two staff members had had, like, a dream that they'd been, like, betrayed by their significant other with somebody on the staff team. And, like, Nicole had had two dreams about people attacking her voice. One where, like, she was just attacked herself. One where she and Grayson and I were, like, somewhere, and people tried to come in and stab, like, syringes into our, her and my throats. And then Jill had this dream where she and, and Aaron and Jason Hesse, who were both on the staff team at the time, were in this boat, and it was like a closed cabin, and it was sinking, and they couldn't get out. And it was filling up with water, and they were drowning. And then right at the end, she, Jill saw herself in the water, like just in a couple inches of water, and there was a toy boat that was sunk, but just like just under the surface. You know how toys are like that? And she picked it up, and she just poured the water out of it. And there were like, it's like seven or eight of these, like, and they were all dreams. Everybody had—nobody knew the other people had them. And we're all just kind of sitting there while people are getting, you know, fried chicken, going like, whoa, right? That's not really where you want to be spiritually, right? And then it got worse. Because as I was thinking about, like, how to, you know, how to pastor this, how to shepherd this, how to work together with other people, with these other guys, I realized that I was totally sideways personally. And I didn't—I'd started to feel it, but I didn't really know why yet. I just was kind of feeling like things were kind of spinning out of control, but it had nothing to do with these things because I felt that way before they came out. And what I realized was, is that when I came to High Point, it was about half the size it is right now, people-wise, and the staff was less than half the size. And I was sort of in charge of being the point person for almost everything. So I was the point thinker, the point leader, the point theologian, the point preacher, the point—like, I was the point counselor, the point conflict resolver, the point all that stuff, right? And what, I, what had happened over the last seven years was is that graciously God had brought new people and he had actually brought somebody in for everything I do well to where that was their primary responsibility. Um, and so I was strategy leadership guy, but then we got an executive pastor, right? I was, um, I was counseling guy, but then as the church grew, we got more pastors. They tended to do most of that counseling. I, even conflict resolution, which— tends to be one of the things I'm better at. One of our biggest departments had, had like, kind of, we kind of had a big blow up with it. And Hannah, who had done work in peacemaking when she was doing mission work in Africa, helped me see how I had totally botched the whole thing. And it was basically the first real conflict at High Point that I had totally blown, right? And even in preaching, because you're like, you still kind of preach a lot, Nick. Um, even in preaching, um, as Lloyd was developing his preaching voice and as he was preparing to be a senior pastor, and as we were trying to become more of a multi-ethnic church— we had to—we just had—he had to preach more. And so we'd scheduled him for 12 sermons for this year, and I'd gone from 40 sermons to 38 sermons to 36 sermons to 32 sermons to 30 or 32 this year. And it just felt like I was standing idle in the middle of organization being dramatically overpaid. And it just—and I realized at that moment that, like, I did not see this coming, but I was in the middle of the wilderness— like, I didn't know what God was doing. I didn't know where God was with it. I was personally sideways. 
the staff I was leading was spiritually sideways, and because of that, we were functionally and emotionally and organizationally sideways. And I had been trying to manage it, but it was getting worse, not better. And I did not know what God was doing. And um, what I knew then, what I had learned previously, and what I definitely know now is that when you find yourself in that situation— of being in what, what the biblical metaphor would call the wilderness, feeling like you're just out in the middle of nowhere, forgotten. You cannot just keep doing what you would normally do, even if what you normally do is healthy. You have to do something different in the wilderness than you do in the city. Like, for example, if you want to have a nice night downtown, you might bring like a wad of money with you downtown because down there you can buy stuff. If you go out into the wilderness, you can bring a big wad of money. It is, I mean, you can start a fire with it, but like it's worthless. It just doesn't, it doesn't connect with what you're doing. But if you like go downtown with like a big backpack with a machete and a rifle, like people get nervous because it's a different, like it's a different context. And when you find yourself spiritually in the wilderness, you've got to do different things. Mainly, you've got to focus on the, the main thing. That's usually what the wilderness is for. It's usually the reason you got there in the first place, but whether you had any control over it or not, what you, what you do is still the same. Whether you're in the wilderness for something you did or whether you're in the wilderness because it just sort of happened, what you do is the same, which is you focus on the one thing. And so in Psalm 27, though David doesn't explain why he feels forgotten or why he, what he's struggling with exactly. His song is—he tells you enough about his experience so you know what his song is coming out of, but mainly what he does in the psalm is he tells you what he's going to do. And what he tells us is he says, there's, there's one thing I'm going to do. I'm going to seek God. And what that looks like is, is that I'm going to seek, dwell, and gaze my way through the wilderness. I'm going to seek, dwell, and and gaze my way through the wilderness. It's, you can see this in verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Now, before, I think the thing that you have, we have to get specific about here, obviously, is what does it mean to seek, dwell, right? Before we get to that, there is a, prelim, a pre-question, which is why, why does God— why does the God who says he's with us seem to do so much through what seems like his absence, right? If you were to take the whole Bible and you were to boil it down to its main central message, and you were to say, what is it that God requires of human beings? For all that God does, he does everything for us. What's the only condition that God puts on human beings? And that condition is faith. Believing and trusting him. Okay, believing and trusting what? Right? And you can narrow all—everything is down—you can narrow down to two things. That God is God, and that he is with us. Everything serves those two ends. All that he does in redemption and salvation is to re-reveal himself, re-reveal the implications of what it means that he is himself and what we've done, and to restore us back to a relationship with him, and so that we can be in a place where we can know that he is himself and that he is with us. Right? Why does the God who is himself and wants us to know that he is with us through faith seem to do so much, seeming like he is not with us? There is, there is a lot of very shallow evangelical biblical theology in which 
people just believe Jesus is their special friend, and if they believe in Jesus, God is with them, and if God is with them, they will feel like God is with them, and if they feel like God is with them, that means God is with them, and everything will, and if God is with them, everything will be fantastic, and if everything will be fantastic, that'll be good. And that, and then they don't experience that. Guess what? You're not going to experience that. Life is not like that at all with God. It's not like that for anybody. And you can cling to that lie for a while, but ultimately it will explode in your face. And it'll make you a really angry person who doesn't believe, right? So why does he do this? Now, in order to get this straight, I think what we have to recognize from the Bible is that God uses the wilderness because what he requires is forged and tempered characters in his story. If you look through the whole Bible, right, look through the whole Bible, who is a hero in the Bible? Who is a sub-hero to Jesus because of their skills or their inherent physical ability? Right? Just, just click through. It's probably a pile of them, right? I mean, people who are skilled and have a lot of ability, they tend to rise. So in the Bible, there's probably lots of them, right? Yeah, you will be here a long while. You go through everyone. It's, it's not the reason any of them. I mean, David wasn't—David, like, was the great warrior, he wasn't a very big guy, apparently. He was, like, smaller than all his other brothers. Moses was kind of a hothead. Spent 40 years in the desert learning how to be a shepherd. David was in officer training school, right? Samuel was apparently the first son of an otherwise barren woman who had three—at least three guys that had him be priest. Gideon was, like, so terrified of his enemies that he was, like, pulling—he was, like— like rubbing out wheat kernels, hiding down in the little hole where they would make wine so nobody would see him because he was so terrified they'd come and steal from him. We could be here a long time going through. The people that are God, that are the heroes that God makes into these heroes of the faith are all heroes of heart, of character, of faith. They trust God through everything. They're non-fragile, non-brittle, non-flabby in their faith. They are super strong. And super strong people in faith don't just, don't just happen to be that way. Their heart turns towards God in faith, and then usually there is a significantly long testing and forging process that makes them into the person there. Even David, you'd be like, well, David was like a young guy. He was like probably in his teens. Yeah, but how long do you think he'd already been in the wilderness being a shepherd? And he had already killed a lion and a bear at least, protecting the sheep. He had already learned how to play music, and he was already adept at these skills. I mean, how many rocks do you think David, while he was just watching the sea, was just flinging at other rocks out in the middle of nowhere? Just, he's got his sling, the sheep are grazing, he's doing nothing, and he's just like— just until his, you know, just he got, he's got nothing better to do, but he used his time, and then he was amazing. Now, part of the misunderstanding is, is that what we mean by wilderness and what the Bible means by wilderness are very different things. When we go to the wilderness, usually, like, you, when people don't want to go to church, oftentimes they'll say that I, have, well, I, I go into God's creation for spiritual experiences. I go out into creation, and it's pristine, and it's beautiful, and it's God's country. And I just don't, I don't need to come to church because of that, right? And I, like, I get where you, I get where that's coming from. And the heavens do declare the glory of God. It's totally true. That has nothing to do with whether or not you should go to church. It's completely non-sequitur logically and biblically. But we go out there 
because we see, we see it as lush and green and beautiful and, and unspoiled, right? And we're getting away from this sort of like artificiality and the mechanistic world that we live in, and, and, it, and it enlivens us. That is not what the Bible means by wilderness. In, in our English that we use today, a better word would be something like desolation. The wilderness in the Bible is not a vacation. It is going and dwelling in a place that is uninhabitable. It is a place where no one wants to live because you, can heart, you can't scrape a life out for yourself. The, the, the place used as the metaphor for that in the Bible is the Sinai Peninsula, which is a waterless, plantless desert. You can go trekking there, but you also can just like roll around in your oven for a while and you'll get a very similar experience. Okay? I mean, it is just a super hot, no one lives there, which is why it was a miracle that the Jewish people could pass through there and not starve to death and not die of having no water, right? Now, Christians have seen Sinai for 2,000 years as an intentional historical biblical metaphor for our lives. Think about this for a second. Think about the story of the Exodus. The Jewish people are enslaved under a tyrannical king. God, through the sacrifice of a lamb, passes over his people and judges the sin and tyranny that they're under. They're saved out through water into a land in which they are made a people, given a covenant, and led by God. Through difficulty only by faith until they ultimately cross a river, Jordan, into a promised land. Okay? You get how that works? Tyranny of, self, of sin and death. Salvation through the Lamb. Saved out through the water of baptism into a land of covenant, promise, faith, and struggle. Crossing over the Jordan of death into the promised land of the kingdom of God. Okay, that's why in all Christian art, whether it's Negro spirituals, whether it's folk music, crossing over Jordan is dying. Okay? Which means all of the life that we're living right now would be where? Right? There. Christians have actually seen all of life as life in the wilderness. Right? In addition to that, almost all of the great covenantal heroes were people of the wilderness. Moses for 40 years. David—all shepherds were people of the wilderness because if any land that isn't wilderness in Israel, you grow crops on or you plant fruit trees. And so the only places where shepherds are are places where you can't grow fruit trees and you can't can't grow grain, which is the wilderness, where there's not enough water, right? So all shepherds—and when John the Baptist starts preaching, where does he go? He doesn't go into Jerusalem. He goes out into the wilderness. People have to go out into the wilderness to hear the gospel. Right? And Jesus is out there for quite a while when he first starts his ministry. And in Luke's gospel, before Jesus starts his ministry, what does he do? He goes out into the wilderness and fasts and is tempted for 40 days. That means even the Son of God, who was already perfect, was forged in the pain of hunger and temptation for 40 days before he began his ministry, and also to demonstrate 40 days, right? That he is the second Moses and the bringer of a new covenant, right? That's why in Christianity, there's all these 40 days of everything. The 40-day fast was the least popular. Now, part of the reason for this is that one of the things that sometimes we don't want to accept is that there are certain things that happen in the wilderness that with humans basically don't happen anywhere else. 
There, the wilderness will get you into a headspace that you just don't get into in your normal life. There are some things that just don't happen until you are in silence for 48 hours. It's just the way it is. Every couple of years I go hunting out west and it's about 10 days in basically high desert. And I, I'm, I'm referred to by other hunters as a lone wolf. I don't hunt with anybody. I hunt by, by myself. I sometimes sleep out by myself. And um, the, only, the only distraction is coyotes howling at night, okay? Which is a little terrifying in the pitch dark. But, but there, about day three, day three to about day six, my head and my heart are at a totally different place than they were the first three days. It just took that long to kind of get unplugged from the, all the scurrying of mind, for my mind to just kind of slow down, to lose all of the false assumptions that are built into my city living and my modern life, Right? And no cell service, which is the other one. Like when you take kids on wilderness trips, what do you not let them bring with them? Their phone. Why? Because part of the whole reason of going out into the wilderness is to get away from distractions. Because, if, because mainly what has to happen in our, the forging of our character is we have to admit things about ourselves we don't want to realize are true about ourselves. We don't want to admit about ourselves and we don't want God to deal with about ourselves. And so we have these layers of distraction that are always, whenever the thing about us comes up, there's some tangent that goes, oh, but this is happening. Oh, but this is happening. So we don't have to deal with the fact that like we were just really mean or we were just really dismissive or we don't want to listen to other people or their attention should be on us or I'm lazy or whatever. We don't want to deal with that. So we have these distractions we've built in. Oftentimes we use technology and schedules and where we live and what we're doing to create these artificial boundaries and distractions so that we can't be dealt with. And see, the wilderness strips all that away. And it also does something just with pain that really can't be rushed. Now, it is possible to seek what the wilderness can do intentionally. Right? You don't necessarily have to wait till stuff goes bad, till you feel like all these things are happening and you're forgotten. You can intentionally go and find space that does what the wilderness can do without being pained into it. Right? So, so the, in the Bible, these are called Sabbaths, right? Times of resting, silence, ceasing, thinking about God, worshiping God. So um, the most important one in the Bible is the weekly Sabbath, which we're doing right now. This is why my, my sermons are intentionally bad. It's supposed to be suffering, right? Like we're, you're supposed to pull away from whatever is going on in our life. We're supposed to stop because the rest of our life we spend scurrying. We're supposed to forget about everything else but God because the rest of our life we forget about God and do everything else, right? We're supposed to be with the people of God to remember what humans relating to each other rightly is supposed to look like so that when we go out there and people don't, we can be like, oh wait, this isn't reality. I need to move in this direction, right? That's why the fellowship and community of the church and its quality is extraordinarily important. But there's other ones, right? So a personal quiet time in the morning. Right? I'm going to go through this day. I'm going to come out to a quiet place, and I'm going to remember who I am and who God is before I go. I'm going to seek. I'm going to gaze. I'm going to dwell for a little bit before I face the day. Right? Or retreats, right? A church or, or some group has a retreat. You go for a couple of days, and you like, you get away. You seek. You dwell. You gaze. You try to remember who you are, what you're doing, why you're doing it, who God is. And then sometimes the Sabbath, sometimes it's a longer period of time where you you just need to take more time to get more unplugged than you've ever been before. But one of the reasons why sometimes pain is really necessary 
is because a lot of what we have to learn in the wilderness is stuff that we won't learn any other way. It's not that we can't learn it any other way. We just won't learn it any other way. So, for example, in Psalm 106, um, there's, this, there's this great chapter where the psalmist says, Praise the Lord. God is so great. So, he's so great. And then in verse 6, he says, Because we've sinned, just as our ancestors did. And then the rest of the psalm, he goes through all of the terrible things the Jewish people did when they were in the desert, when they were in the wilderness. And he just goes on and on and on. He goes through, and if you were to read the whole first five books of the Bible, the whole Torah, and you were to make a list of all the stuff that they did wrong, in all five books, it's all in Psalm 106, every single one. He doesn't miss any of them. The idolatry, the sacrificing of their own children in idolatrous worship, the grumbling against God, the complaining, the the attacking of Moses as the prophet and leader, forgetting everything God did, forgetting it right after it was over. And complaining again, even though they just received an enormous amount of grace and generosity. That kind of terrible attitude and poisoned heart. They go, this is what, this is what they did. This is what they did. This. And the, the reason for that is this. Because the point of Psalm 106 is the psalmist is confessing that he's like this. That we're all like this. And you see, what the desert did to the Jewish people was it brought it out. It boiled it to the surface. The Jewish people, when they were in slavery— there's lots of reason to believe that the Egyptians were the bad people and they were the good people, right? When you're being oppressed and attacked and people are treating you terrible and you can't control your own life or control your own destiny, it's very easy to be like, you know, we're good Jewish people. You know, we believe in God. We're not bad. It's these people that are bad, right? And then they get freed. The Egyptians are no longer an issue. They come out in the desert. God is enormously gracious to them. And what kind of people do they turn out to be? You get a little heat get people to sweat a little, move the water a li- a one day out so they're a little stressed about it, give them the same food for a couple months straight, don't vary it up, have them deal with a little monotony. Doesn't take much. It does not take much. And they're saying, we used to eat onions and stuff when we lived in Egypt. It was so good. And you're like, you were the subject of genocide. But you see, the pain of wilderness, of any wilderness experience, especially when you don't seek it, but it is forced upon you, it, it brings to the surface stuff we do not want to admit about ourselves. It shows us our sin. It shows us what we're really like. And that's so important. And we're so allergic to it. Even as believers, we want to be like, I believe in Jesus and I want the Holy Spirit to show me my sin and blah, 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 blah. And it, no, not really. Not near as much as we pretend. And it's usually the sin that we think that God is dealing with us about is oftentimes the most superficial sin in our lives. We're a little snippy about this, and we're like, oh, God is dealing with me about that. Meanwhile, we're just, we're just so self-involved that all of our time, all of our money, all of our attitude is just going towards pouring into ourselves. And meanwhile, we think that God is sort of dealing with us a little bit about how much time we're spending playing this video game. But see, the wilderness won't let you do that. The wilderness rubs your face in the worst of you. And because it does that, it is this incredible, generous, loving, hopeful grace of God. Because the moment you see it, repentance and faith lays right before you. And God's free forgiveness is present. And your sense of knowing and longing and your ability to see the beauty. Because if you can stop gazing at yourself, you have a chance at gazing at the beauty of God. 
And if you can do that, your ability to not be afraid and to be confident in the midst of whatever is happening is really high. It's a lot better. And, and the last thing about it is that there's probably just some stuff that you just can't be done without the forging process. You probably need to be heated and banged on. There's, there's probably not an easy way. So, okay, I'm going to enter into the realm of speculation. So put an asterisk next to what I'm going to say right now, okay? I have no idea for sure if it's right. I think it might be right, but it's speculation. One of the things that I've thought about a good bit is a lot of people will attack the early narrative in Genesis about if God was so generous to create everything, why wasn't he generous enough to actually give Adam and Eve the right to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Right? I mean, don't—isn't isn't one of the most fundamental things about human beings our, our capacity to learn and remember knowledge? Isn't that how we see ourselves as fundamentally different from other animals and all that kind of thing? I mean, why, why would that—why would he do that, right? And you see, I think it bears with it the demonic bias— of that, yeah, God is just withholding it. I mean, that's what, that's what the snake says, right? You can have it. He's just withholding it. He knows that if you take it, you'll be like him. But, but what if that's not true? What if there are some things that have to be built layer upon layer, and you, you can't just dump them? What if you can create a universe in a second, whether or not he did, but what if you just can't create character in a second? What if it's just not that sort of thing? What if the first lesson of the knowledge of good is evil is God can be trusted? And that if you build on any other first lesson, you simply cannot construct a knowledge of good and evil that will last. It'll just always be false. And so saying, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can trust me, actually was the first step of the knowledge of good and evil that God was going to progressively impart in the layers of how knowledge of good and evil lays out, so that God was giving them the knowledge of good and evil, but he was doing it through a forging process because character can only be forged. And the first lesson that we as the human race have still never learned is that God can be trusted. Lesson one. And because we have, as a race of, of creatures, have refused to believe the first lesson— we are now several thousand or million years into our experience of each other and still do not have straight good and evil. What if there are some things that just have to be forged? And what if, now that we're under the curse, in addition to being unformed, what if it's all the more true now because so much has to be pounded out of us before these things can be reforged into us? Now, I don't know if that's the case or not. I think it's logically possible. And if it's logically possible, then the argument of atheists is not necessarily true. Which would lead us back to whether or not God can be trusted. And whether or not God can be trusted to forge us. And maybe it just isn't really possible without pain. I mean, if your life is going fine, and we're all together living, and all of a sudden things get really hard, who do we want to lead us? Somebody whose life has been really hard. It turns out that the pudgy generations aren't ready. We're not ready for conflict, right? Um, at the time of the Civil War, you know why the North almost lost the Civil War? Almost lost the Civil War. It was very close. We all hear in the textbooks that the, that the North was destined to win because it had railroads, and it had grain, and it had, it had steel refineries, it had all that stuff. It, no, they almost lost. You know why they almost lost? 
because nobody in the North knew how to shoot. That's why. The average Confederate soldier was worth three to four Union soldiers because they could actually hit what they were shooting at. You know why? Because they're all, they all rural kids. The, the entire South was rural. Everybody grew up hunting. Everybody grew up in the woods. Almost everybody who was brought into the Union Army were poor people, many immigrants, usually city kids who had never even held a firearm. So you go to war, and it turns out the people who had been forged did a lot better than the people who had never been prepared for what they were going to face. And it turns out that if God wants us to stand up into a difficult world that has the curse of sin running through it, where redemption is difficult, where people have to be strong, where you can't be some brittle moral pansy and actually be who God has called you to be, you have to be forged. And it's probably not possible to be forged without pain. It probably wouldn't have been possible if we were just in innocence. It's, it's almost certainly not possible as people who have drank so much of the curse. Right? So in that context, if all that's true, except for possibly the speculative part, what does it mean for us to say with David, I, in the wilderness, what faith looks like in the wilderness is to seek God's face and to wait for him, right? So the, the two relevant parts of this passage are, he says, my heart says of you, seek your face. Your face, the Lord, will I seek. Do not hide your face from me. And then earlier he says, the one thing I ask is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gaze on the beauty of the Lord, and seek him in his temple. Which means, okay, so Fallen condition focus here. Okay. Normal humans, when things are going awry, literally reverse the human divine job when things are going difficult for us. So when things are going difficult for us, what we normally do is this. God, where are you? I'm going to handle this. That's what we normally do, right? God's not around. We better handle it, right? And God, where are you? So God, you should show yourself and I'm going to do something. Does that make sense? If we read the psalm carefully, David actually reverses that. He's like, that's actually not how it goes. Here's, here's how it goes. When God seems absent and something seems to be overwhelming you, what faith looks like is turning to God for the thing that's overwhelming us and taking upon ourselves the work of seeking God. That is that God has shown his face. God has spoken and shown himself. He has shown his face. And if we seek it, we're going to find sufficiently what we need in the situation that we're in. And the situation that we're in is bigger than us. And we need to do our duty, but we need to trust him to do something about it. And we have to get that straight. I, now that's just, all that is is a fancy slide for faith. I could just erase all that and put the word faith up there. It would mean the exact same thing. Does that make sense? And so seeking God's face in the midst of this kind of thing basically means dwelling in and gazing on what God has shown about himself in ways that clarify and motivate faith. Now, one of the key, one of the key ideas in here is when he says this. He says that I can dwell in your house, and the reason he wants to dwell in his house is he says, so I can gaze upon your beauty, so that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. 
I don't know how many years ago, several decades ago, um, Pope John Paul wrote, he said, the problem, the great problem of the 20th century is one problem. A misunderstanding of what a human being is. From that proceeds consumerism. From that proceeds communism. From that proceeds genocide. From that proceeds totalitarianism. From that proceeds socialism. From that all the ills proceed from a very simple thing. A misunderstanding of what a human being is. Made in God's image. Made for God's purpose. But then he said this. I have spent my life writing about this. But it will not be solved until the church shows the beauty of it. Do you understand? If you think certain thoughts, and that's it. They're just thoughts. And if you feel viscerally very strong emotions like fear, anger, bitterness, what's going to happen inside your heart? What's stronger? What's going to take over? Where is your will going to be directed? What are your passions going to be focused on? Your, your guts are going to beat your brain every time. Or to use modern brain chemistry, you know, your, your back brain is going to beat your front brain every time. Only the truth becoming beautiful, that is, capturing the mind's eye, capturing the vision, capturing the emotion, forming the soul, creating character, calibrating the conscience, taking over the, the, the painting and the beauty of the inner world. Only that beauty can overcome the viscerality of our fear and anger and bitterness and rage. And only when David, in the midst of all the terror, focuses on gazes enraptured on the beauty of the Lord, can he not fear when an army arrays against him and in that moment be confident? And then what, what's left to do, and what, what he says is a, is a really important thing. He says what's left to do is to wait on the Lord. That's the last verse, right? To wait on the Lord. And so he says, I'm going to seek his face. And then verse 11, he says, show me your straight way. That is, I'm going to walk your ways, right? And then he says, now wait on the Lord. Now that sounds very passive, but he says, take heart and be strong and wait on the Lord. So waiting on the Lord means something like this. You're in a battle. You're starting to lose. The line is starting to break. You know there's reinforcements coming. You hold the line until they get there. You don't know how long it's going to be. You know they're coming. And you're losing. It doesn't matter. You will fight the long defeat. You will never give up. That's the closest illustration I can come to to what waiting on the Lord means. Because he's saying he's going to see what, who God is and what God wants. And then he says, and then I'm going to do what he's called me to do. I'm going to walk his straight way. So it's a very active thing. And then he says, with all that's being pushed together in me, I'm going to wait. I'm going to take heart. I'm going to find strength. I'm going to wait on the Lord. That is, I'm going to hold this line. I'm never going to back down. Because he says, because this is, this is my confidence. Remember he ends the first, the 
first three verses with, I won't be afraid. In this I will be confident. And at the very end he says, because this is what I'm confident of. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Therefore, wait on the Lord. Speaking of gazing, let's end with a passage from the book of Isaiah. And what, given all I've said about wilderness and what I've said about what the wilderness is for and how it's hard and all of that, listen, listen to this chapter. It's fairly short. It's short. This is the God giving a prophetic word 700 years before Jesus was born. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. Those are the three lushest places in in Israel. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance and with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute's tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground, a bubbling spring in the haunts where jackals once lay. Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and there will be a highway and it will be called the way of holiness. Now think about this. Papyrus is like cattails. Right? Now think about this for a second. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Somebody asks about Jesus, who are you really? Now he could have said, I'm the Messiah. He could have said, I'm the Christ. He could have said, I'm the Son of God. That's not what he says. He says, go back and tell them what you see. And, And then what does he say? You see, Jesus could have done anything for his miracles. Do you realize this? He could have anything. He could have levitated. He could have made beer not give you a hangover. I mean, he could have done anything with his miracles, but he didn't. He did a few very specific things. He made the deaf hear. He made the blind see. He made the lame walk. He made the mute talk. Get it? That when the wilderness becomes a garden, you will know because, and you'll be like, because we're going to have a flood. I get it. No, you'll know because the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the mute will speak, and the lame will walk. That's when you'll know. And then in John's gospel, Jesus says to the woman in Samaria, he says, if you would have asked me, if you would have, you get it? If you would have known what to ask me for, it's only one thing you would ask me for. You would ask me for a living water. You would ask me for the kind of water that no matter what desert you're in, no matter what's happening to you ever in your life, no matter how bad the desert, no matter how the, how the, how the parching sand of what your life feels like, no matter how bad it is, inside of you will be a spring of cold, clear, clean encouragement and strength and fervor that comes from gazing on beauty that you have not yet imagined. And then in chapter 7, he would say, I will give everyone who believes and trusts him 
a spring of living water. You see, the wilderness is to forge us, but the wilderness will only forge us if we combine it with faith. Otherwise, it's just wasted. You're just gonna be hot. That's it. But if you combine it with faith, and by combining it with faith, you, you seek, dwell, and gaze such that you find his path and that you wait on the Lord. His promise is not that the wilderness will be short or that the battle will be easy. His promise is that no matter how dry the wilderness is, inside of you, in the Holy Spirit, a spring of living water will flow. It's capable of sustaining you in everything. And the only thing you can do to increase its flow is to seek the face of the Lord and seek to gaze on his beauty. And many times to do that, you will need to get away somehow for a quiet moment, for a weekend, for a sabbatical. So as we, as we sing this last song, um, think about that, I guess. Let's pray. Lord, would you please help us to be a people knowing that we're going to face all kinds of different wildernesses. And, there, and our natural response in them will be fear and feeling out of control and feeling angry and feeling weary and feeling bitter and feeling forgotten. And no matter how much we feel like a parked, rusting car or a, a bird in a cage with cats climbing in, no matter how desperate it makes us feel, I pray, God, that you would help us, please help us to have the same attitude that David had, that you inspired in him to seek your face, to seek to dwell and gaze on you and to be changed by your beauty so that he would see your face so that he would walk in your path, so that he would wait on you with strength. And I pray that for each of us, we would see that that promise has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled in Jesus. And that the greatest promise of what you will do in the wilderness, besides forge us to be like Jesus, is that you will fill us with the living water of the encouragement and presence and comfort of Jesus. Holy Spirit, please come and do that work as we sing in Jesus' name.